Pray with me. Father in heaven, we praise you for your goodness. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us, not only in creation, as uh, it shouts forth your glory and majesty, but also through your word, and ultimately through the son that walked on, on this earth. And Father, that we have now the teachings that you have, um, by your spirit, preserved so that we might learn and grow and be more like Christ. Uh, Lord, conform us to your image by the power of your Holy Spirit as we study your word and as we uh, share this time together. We praise you and we thank you that you are good and glorious. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, guys, uh, I, I just returned last week from uh, San Diego. I was, uh, <clears throat> I was out there uh, laboring, doing a community group. I was developing a community group in San Diego. It's our East Cooper Baptist Church West branch. That's uh, um, my daughter and son-in-law and new grandson. So I'm not above. I mean, Buster uses the pulpit to comment on football games and stuff like that. I'm not, I'm not there. I'm not above, though, uh, telling you about this. Liam Karras Hughes, uh, born 19th, November 19th. I had to figure out some way to work it into the sermon. I'm talking on missions, so my point is, we need to be transgenerational in committing this, uh, the, our youth and our students and our children to the Lord as we give them a heart for the nations. Okay, end of uh, commercial. Thanks. See you, Liam. All right. I, I had to do that. But let me tell you, while I was out there, it was an amazing experience. So, grand, we got grandparents in the crowd, right? I know we do. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm here. Nothing like it. I mean, my kids are a mess, but my grandkids, no, that's perfect. But... Um, <laughs> I was over there with my baby, my, my baby, yeah, my, it's actually my grandson, I, I, we claimed it. Rafia's still there playing with Liam, and I'm over here with you guys, but I'd rather, never mind, won't go there. Uh, you know, when I picked up this child for the first time, I, I felt this compelling urge to raise it in the air and hear Africa drum beats and, and do my best James Earl Jones voice and say, Simba, remember who you are, you know. I, I, uh, it was such, a, such an exhilarating feeling, but we're not, we're not, that has nothing to do with my sermon topic, but um, if Buster can hijack the sermon to do commercials about Clemson football, then I can, uh, I can do this. But you guys are doing a pretty good job commercial anyway. I've seen lots of ties and coats and scarves that are of a certain color. Um, this is a very unconventional missions talk. Buster said, can you preach about missions while I'm gone to Vermont? Um, with the Thanksgiving for Chelsea's family, Zach's wife. And I said, sure, I can do that. I said, well, you know, whatever, I, I'm going to do that. But what I really uh, wanted to bring to you guys is a little unconventional way of looking at this missions thing. Because we're going to look at Isaiah 6 um, this morning, verses 1 through 8, and I'll read that in just a moment. You can be turning there in your Bible. And listen, I'm a, my wife says, you're not a glasses half full guy or a glasses half empty guy. You're a, I know there's a, full glass around here somewhere, guy. Um, and so I'm just going to take it by faith. We have all that space in the bulletin for you to write these copious notes that you're going to be taking. And um, I'm going to take it by faith that you're doing that, not making a grocery list and, um, and, and coloring pictures. Steve's over there. He's got coloring crayons in his pocket. But uh, no, I thought that was very flattering that I got that much um, room in the bulletin. So anyway, here goes. Um, my my uh, discussions with the staff, we were talking about 2015, and we're talking about how do we create a culture of evangelism and missions and outreach? How do we get a people, um, a body of Christ, just a part of their nature and culture to look out 
look outward, to face outward, to see those people who aren't in, to look for the persons that are on the outside and bring them in being more inclusive. And how do we create the culture in there? And I think one of the things that I'm convinced is, is in my study of God's word is, now follow this, <clears throat> the greater degree of separation between a holy and majestic God and you, yourself, is, a, is the launching pad for great ministry. It's a launching pad for great hope. It's a launching pad for great passion. And what I mean by that is, if we lose the awe, now we, that word awe is, is abused quite a bit. We say, that's an awesome turkey, mom. That was an awesome catch. He laid out and made that great interception. It was awesome. But you know, the, the word awesome has some very rooted meaning to it that is grounded in a otherness kind of uh, fear. There is something present that is so beyond, so superlative, and it's so different. It's not familiar. It's other. And it's scary. It it makes me want to kind of, wow, I am not that. It is that, and I am not that. That is awe. And that fear of God is that reverential awe. And if we lose that reverential awe as a culture, we go down the twos. When we become too familiar and too comfortable in negotiating on our terms with a God, we can uh, undermine his, his will for us and his, um, joy, the joy that we have, actually. My premise is that the more we see that the paradox of the Christian life is, the greater the separation between a holy God and me is the more hope I have and the more uh, I'm compelled to share that hope. And, you know, we, we're going to talk about the holiness of God. Let me read to you Isaiah 6. Well, my Bible got turned. That's a test to see if I can find Isaiah 6 again. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were the seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. And they were calling out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth, and he said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. We have to recapture the awe of the holiness of God. Now, our early church fathers and the reformers, they had this down. The Puritans, they had this down. In the contemporary culture, we have gotten to be much too openly gracious and familiar with a holy and righteous God. Now, I'm not going to hammer us with this fear God and wrath of God kind of context, but let me, let me see if we can, if, if it'll help us if we unpack the scriptures a little bit and to see God as majesty as high and exalted and lifted up. Now, some of you guys are going, wow, this is going to be heavy because I know that in First Chronicles 13, uh, Uzzah 
was trying to stabilize the ark and where he was told not to touch. No human hand could touch the ark. And he stabilized it when it was on the wagon that David was carrying back to Jerusalem. And boom, he died because God is holy. And he said, don't do it. Don't touch. You say, whoa. We know about Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons, who were also priests and Levites, and they were offering, temp- offering sacrifices in the temple and burnt offerings, and they offered, some, they offered some unauthorized fire. In other words, they had a better way. Not as prescribed by God, but they were going to wing it a little bit. And boom, they died. Because it wasn't his way. It wasn't God's way. It was their way. And you go, wow, that's a, that's a fearful frightening God that we serve and you say hmm that's scary there should be a healthy fear that is more like Moses when he was hidden in the cleft of the rock said show me your face God and he said I cannot show you my face or you'll die but if you'll go in this cleft and I'll put my hand over it and when I pass by you'll see my back and what had happened Moses saw the backside of God and his face was radiant and he had to veil his face and it changed him forever because that's a holy and righteous other awesome other holy other separate being beyond this world superlative and then you have stories that Peter remember when Peter after Jesus said uh, they'd been out fishing all night and Jesus came on the beach and said take your boat out a little deeper Peter said I'm a fisherman I got this you know, that's, uh, I see some heads perk up. They said, fish, fish. I see the, we're going to go out and you know, get those spots. He said, we fished all night. There's no fish out there. They're not biting. And so he said, well, go out a little deeper and let's do this. So they said, oh, I'm sure Peter rolled his eyes and said, okay, master, whatever you say. And they went out and boom, every, every fish in the Sea of Galilee jumped in the nets. They couldn't even bring it in. What was the, Peter's response? <laughs> Depart from me. Get away from me. See, God was, Jesus was not frightening them. He actually was blessing them, but it was so otherworldly, so incredible, so powerful that it, it, it struck fear in the hearts of Peter. That who is this man who, who did this? I am undone. I'm, I'm, I'm unclean. And we know the story of the disciples in Mark chapter 4. When, when also they were, they were going about and they were um, in, a, in a situation where they were in a boat on a, a Sea of Galilee and a storm came up, a really, uh, I mean, a Category 5 storm. They were fearful and so afraid and the, and the master was asleep on, you know, on the stern. And he said, uh, they ran to the disciple, ran to him and said, Master, wake up. You don't care that we're going to die? And Jesus stood up and he spoke. And the calms and the, and the seas were calm. What was their response? Their response was, "Yay!" No, their response was they were terrified. This is when the storm got eradicated. This is when the seas are calm. They were terrified because they were staring at the otherness, the holiness of God, the awe. They were awestruck. In fact, awful is we ought to be more awful. It's so otherly, it's uncomfortable. That's why we look at God, because if we, the separation between the majesty of God and our self-image should be a big gap, because to those who are forgiven much, love much, right? 
And if my gap is really big, that was a huge gift that Jesus came and poured himself out on the cross to take my place. And the substitutionary atonement of Jesus is a big gift. If there's not much of a gap, that's not much of a gift. So our hope resides in the fact that there is a huge gap. And the degree that we see the gap is that my need is a chasm too far to bridge to God's grandeur and majesty. So here's Isaiah. Here's Isaiah, and he sees in the year King Uzziah died. That's 8 B.C. He served for 52 years. He had four monarchs of Judah that he kind of profited, he was counseled with. And here he is, in the year King Uzziah died, he sees the Lord, that's L-O-R-D, small case O-R-D, that's Adonai, sovereign king, high and lifted up, exalted, seated, but exalted. And he said that the, 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 the train filled the temple. Now, we don't know trains. If we were Brits, we would know trains. But the kings and monarchs flout and flaunt their majesty and their, their, their glory by long trains. The longer the train, the, the hip, more hip you are, I guess. But it's, it's the more effulgence glory is a longer train. God is seen by Isaiah as his train is filling the temple. It's a big old train that just, imagine, packs the room. We can't get in or out. That's the uh, visual that uh, Isaiah is seeing here. Then he says, and then there are, um, you know, there's this, things are happening here. Seraphs start flying around. But when I, when I think of the, the, the bigness of God, I think about the galaxies, and I think about the, the incredible uh, views that the Hubble telescope can give us of galaxy beyond galaxies and holes that are black holes. There are still places out there, and I'm going, wow, this place is big. And he set each one of those stars and planets in its place and measured the heavens and all their courses and the rotations. And in the middle of this black, vast, deep galaxy is a dot, and it's a planet Earth with seven billion people. On that, there's a continent, North America, and in, in there, there's a South Carolina and a Charleston and a East Cooper Baptist Church, 361 Egypt Road, and there's a little dot in the room. That's me. That's you. The same God who spoke ex nihilo, out of nothing, all this into being, and governs it, is high and exalted. He is seated because he's done. He's got his work, but he's always in control. He's not frantic. He's not winging it. He's not reacting to a crisis. He's governing in his sovereign goodness. And we can rest in that. So the more we see God as high and lift up, the more hope we have, the more comfort we have, the more we understand the, the need of those who are out there who are traveling around this planet without that hope. That's a compelling factor. And then these seraphs, these six-winged creatures. Now, to get the image. The image is a six-winged creature that's, that's flying. They have two wings that are covering their faces because they can't look upon Christ. They can't look upon God. Two wings are flying. And two wings are covering their feet because we know that the feet of clay are those that the creature has, not the creator. But the creatures have feet that attach them to the, to the, uh, to the earth. So their creatureliness. They can't gaze upon them. They can't show his feet like Moses when standing before the burning bush. Take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. Other, you're not other. You're a creature, not a creator. That was the message to Moses, and he got it. And those seraphs got it. They're preaching to us. They got it. They're flying, 
and singing to one another, exclaiming loudly, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Wow. The whole earth is filled with his glory. That's the song that they sing, and Isaiah is just dumbstruck. In fact, the doorpost and the thresholds of the temple start shaking. This is a 8.9 on a Richter scale. I mean, this thing starts, this starts coming unglued. The whole temple is shaking. Then smoke fills the temple. And his heart, he is not thinking this is cool. He is undone. He says, woe is me. Woe is me. You know, the oracle of woe and an oracle of weal. Oracle of woe is the prophets uh, gave uh, oracle of wheels or blessing. Or blessed is. The Sermon on the Mount is oracles of wheel. Blessed is, blessed is, blessed is, blessed is he that do, does this. That's a, that's a prophetic utterance of oracle of wheel. It's a blessing. On the other hand, that's a, and that's a benediction, okay? That's a, a malediction, a proclamation of bad news is a woe. It's called an oracle of woe. And it is doom. It is destruction. It is despair. And usually a prophet proclaims an oracle of woe or weal in a situation governed by God, but never on themselves. What he's saying is basically, I'm done. God, you're so immense and so incredible, and I've seen this shaking, and I've seen the smoke and the train and the angels that are singing, they can't look upon you. Take me out. I can't do this. This is, it's too hot in this kitchen. I am undone. And woe is me is a proclamation of his, of his own doom. And he says, I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. It's like looking in a, in a mirror. You know, um, I made the mistake of putting one of those retractable arm makeup mirrors for my wife in the bathroom, and it's about this big, and it's got lights that go around it, and you turn that puppy on, it's a bad thing in the morning. You know, the more I look into that, the brighter it is, the more blemishes and frailties and flaws, I say, who is that old dude that just walked in my house? And um, it's terrible, isn't it? It's a frightening thing. It's an, it's an oracle of woe. Woe is me. But what happens is the closer we get to God and see him in his effulgence glory, the more we see our imperfections and our frailties and our need for him. That is because you are the creature and he is the creator. You say, but that's so self-centered. God makes everything about him. For his name's sake, he has called you a people unto himself for his name's sake, for his glory. Why so self-centered? If you're the, let me just tell you this. I mean, I'm just going to state the obvious. If, you're, if you sustain the universe and spoke it into being, and you hold it all together by the spoken word, you are the center of the universe, okay? You can say you're self-centered because you're the center. We are not. We are just like children, groping and asking for grace and mercy. And so Isaiah here figures that out, and he says, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? Uh, I'm unclean. And then an angel comes, takes tongs and a fiery coal from the, from the altar, and brings it and touches his lips. The imagery there is a purging of a singeing or, or a carterization or purification of the hot coals touching his lip. Because we know from the lips come the overflow of the heart. And we have really a statement here of cleansing the heart. And so this, he says, you know, the words he says is, you are, your guilt is taken and your sin is atoned for. Wow. Wow, God is lifted up and he's majestic and it's scary. 
I am so undone because I know my heart and it's black and wicked and I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm, a, cre- I'm a creature, not a creator. I'm not going to try to beat my breast and say this is my world. I'm, I'm a captain of my own ship. I'm done trying. You, you can run the show. And then comes the cleansing. When the repentant, repentant, broken spirit comes in that posture, then comes the cleansing and the hope and the joy of being forgiven. Your sins have been atoned for. Your guilt is taken. Wow, is that hope? Do we have a message to proclaim? And what created, what's all uh, pro- produced by all this scene is a spirit that when God says, now, who shall I send? Who will go for us? Isaiah says, you know, you ever watch poker? I know you don't play it, but you ever watch it? They say, I'm all in. That was, that was Isaiah's all in, man. He took all his chips and he said, here am I, send me. Not only did he say, here am I, send me, but he probably emptied his pockets and said, here's all my stuff. He probably grabbed his children and said, here's my kids. He grabbed his grandkids and said, here's my grandson. I'm all in because I've seen who you are and I know who I am. And it creates in me a, a thanksgiving because love is greater for those who have been forgiven much. If I understand that degrees of separation correctly, it produces world-beater Christians who are on kingdom mission to see the ends of the earth proclaim his glory. Because why? Because he is deserving. He's worthy of our worship. You know, um, probably a, a, a significant number of us have dealt with periods in our lives where we have figured it out. And I'm saying here, your God is not awesome and holy enough if you can negotiate with him on your terms. Or if you're busy doing things, if we're busy doing things that we want to do to the exclusion of things he wants us to do, then you're, you're, it's, the, the degrees of separation aren't, aren't enough. And if, if you, you know, Frederick Nietzsche said uh, he's opposed, he's an existentialist, and God is a crutch. No, no, he's not a crutch. He's a ventilator. You're dead without him. And so, another interesting story in the bathroom where most good theological tenets are written on the wall. I saw this quote, great quote. God is dead, Frederick Nietzsche. Frederick Nietzsche is dead, God. That was good. That's, so, last, last left. So, so here am I, here's my stuff, here's my kids. That's our response. And that's, we, are, we are blessed to be a part of a community of faith that says that's who we are, that's what we're about. Let us spur one another to see the, the gap, the degree of separation, and give grace to people, because let me tell you, some of you got higher degrees of separation than others, but there is the need for us to understand our own fallenness and our own neediness. And that's what prompts a missionary spirit. That's what prompts a church to give. And that's what, uh, you know, there are over 2,000 unengaged, unreached people groups no gospel witnessed. These are ethno-linguistic you know, people groups. They have their own dialect and own culture. There are over 2,000 of them still without any gospel um, presence. And uh, that's frightening because they're on the outside. They don't know this. They, they, they see a degree of separation, but they have no angel flying to touch a coal to their lips saying your sins are atoned for, your guilt is gone and taken. So we have to take that. We have to be the ones that take that gift of salvation to the ends of the earth. In 12 years of serving in India and Bangladesh, 
we, said, we knocked off 196. My team and us with about 16 teams living across of 350 million people. Um, we saw 196 UUPGs, unengaged, unreached people groups, have a church, a multiplying church movement. But there's 2,000 of them still out there, guys. There's still work to be done so that God gets his glory. And he has put us here as a part of that. We're the, part, we're the solution, guys. I mean, God, I don't know why he chose to use us. He could decree, and, but he's chosen to use his church to give us the resources. We have his spirit. We have his word. We have everything we own belongs to him anyway. He is just so gracious to let us keep 90%. And then whatever else we give to the cause of Christ worldwide is a gift, a fragrant offering to him. And so I got a message here from uh, David Platt. David Platt was a former um, pastor at Brook Hills, Church of Brook Hills in Birmingham, Alabama, wrote the book Radical. He was a partner with us over in India. And um, um, now he's been recently installed as the president of the IMB, International Missions Board of the Southern Baptist Convention. He has a message here that he wants us to hear. But then to come back down in this city, into Kathmandu, and we're walking the city. Nobody prepared me for this. As we rounded the corner and uh, came upon this, this site called Pashpati, it's this Hindu holy river. And, uh, and the custom is when a friend or family member dies, they, within 24 hours, bring the body to this river. And there's funeral pyres set up across the river, on top of the river. And so they bring the body of their friend or family member, they put it on the funeral pyre, and they set the body ablaze. And then as the body burns and the ashes go down in the river, they believe this is helpful in the process of reincarnation. So we're just walking to the city, and I round the corner, and I see this scene in front of me. And I'm just stopped in stunned silence. Just picture it. I find myself face to face with burning bodies on funeral pyres. Family members and friends just wailing around these burn. And I'm watching these bodies burn. And I realize I'm looking at a physical picture of a spiritual reality that's going on right now. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at bodies of people. I mean, they were alive 24 hours before. Now they're dead. And these people, they're... Right now, I'm standing there. They're burning in hell. And they're going to be there forever. 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 And then, as if that's not enough, then it hits me that most, if not all these people who 24 hours before were alive, most, if not all these people who were burning in hell died, and when they died, they'd never even heard how they could go to heaven instead. Nobody ever even told them how much God loves them and desired to save them from where they are. They, they, they're in hell and nobody told them how they could not be there. Like, what is it going to take for the concept of unreached peoples to become 
totally intolerable to us in the church. And brothers and sisters, this is not acceptable, is it? It's just not possible to sit back and just kind of coast through cultural Christianity. It's like, we, just, we can't turn a deaf ear and a blind eye to that reality. There's more bodies right now on funeral pyres in Nepal. And they're going to be there tomorrow. They're going to be there the next day. Unless something changes, more people born, live, die, never even hearing the gospel. God, wake us up to this reality. There's just one reason why we must go. It takes about $52,000 to keep a family on the field, and we have over 4,800 IMB missionaries serving all over the earth, reaching these unengaged, unreached people groups. So $52,000, our goal is $500,000. We can keep 10 families on the field for the whole year. And that's taking care of their needs and their strategy needs and their health needs and their housing. And um, What a gift. What a gift. You can be a part of reaching the ends of the earth. And so our allotted moon goal is 500000 We've met that before. We'll do that again by God's grace as we respond to him out of joy because we understand the degrees of separation between his majesty and glory, our extreme need, his deliverance, and our total all-in. Let's pray. Father, you are good and you are glorious, and we do pray that you, by your power, would wake us up as the church and that has. We have so much. I pray, God, that as we um, come to this season where you gave your son, God incarnate, Emmanuel, came, stepped down from the throne of glory and walked among us. The one who created all the laws of physics now submitted himself to the laws of physics and was, um, was giving and left that pattern for us. Make us givers, we pray. Make us worshipers that understand a holy and majestic sovereign God is awesome and not to be trite but it's a little fearful and it's a little otherness and it makes us want to worship and fall down on our face. Create that in our, in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name.